The Cappuccino Podcast brought to you in association with Tactical Solutions. For all your tactical solutions, check them out at www.tactical.co.nz. It's that time again, so grab yourself a cup of joe and get ready for the Cappuccino with Constable Brian. All right, so my guest today on the Cappuccino Podcast, uh, luckily enough to have, I'm going to call you experts, because that's what you are, Dr. Claire and Sergeant Brian from the Evidence-Based Policing Centre. Uh, we will talk a little bit more about how they got involved in evidence-based policing, uh, how they're involved in the New Zealand Evidence-Based Policing Centre, and just what brought them to this point in their, I'm going to say policing career, because I know that you've had other stuff going on as well, Claire, so here we go. So let's start off with, before we kick off with that though, let's start off with the speed round dedicated to the world's best police movie of all time. Speed with Keanu Reeves in it, he's from Bill and Ted, he's Neo from The Matrix, he's John Wick, blah blah blah. Right, so, first question for you Dr. Clear, and then Sergeant Brian, you can back me up on this afterwards. Uh, are you an aisle or window seat on the plane? Oh, window seat always. There you go. Sergeant Brian? 100% window gold. seat, yep. Okay, right. Dr. Clear, what's the best album to be on a road trip with? Album? Ooh. Oh. Oh, um, oh, a mix album of things. Um, Hendrix, Dire Straits, Bowie. Just going Guardians of the Galaxy on us, right? Good yep. uh, Brian? The Eagles. Nice, there you go. <laughs> Dr. Clear, in your opinion, what is the best police movie of all time? Uh, movie, can I say a series instead? Yeah, if you want. The Wire, hands down. There you go. Idris Elba, yep, good work. Brian? That's, good that's really interesting. You ask cops this program, and they, this <clears> question, they always go, and they're like the silent. Probably so. Die Hard movies, eh? There you go. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Coming up to Christmas as well. Yeah. What's your favourite book of all time? Dr. C, go first. Oh, gosh. Favourite book. I've got so many. Um, can't be a study book. It either. can't be a study book. No. So, a fun book. Um, yeah. A fun book. <laughs> uh, Contact by Carl Sagan. Ooh, there you go. Yeah. Brian? Uh, one I've read recently was um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Cudman. And um, yeah, very interesting book about the, the brain and the system one, system two thinking so i really enjoyed reading that nice i'm gonna throw you both a curveball and say slaughterhouse fired by kurt vonnegut oh, yeah. my favorite yep fair enough binge watch what's been your last binge watch last binge watch um this is the point where you both go too busy can't watch anything yeah, on tv yeah a little bit like that um current binge watch yep if you yeah want. Yep. um watching the rain on netflix okay yeah cool right yeah, i've been too busy so um I, the, the series before that was um suits okay oh, yeah, yeah, yeah cool yeah, yep. suits. no worries nice. you could last question last random question for you both what is your guilty social media follow pleasure the one thing that if i said to your workmates did you realize that they follow this on social media they'd go get out of here Oh, without a doubt, Brian and Bobby. There you um, go. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> me I'll, too, I'll mate. Me too. But apart from that, it's uh, Elon Musk. Nice. Good work. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, All right. Brian. So the New Zealand, <laughs> the New Zealand Evidence-Based Policing Centre was established in December 2017 as a joint partnership between the New Zealand Police, the University of Waikato, and the Institute of Environmental Science and Research, and New Zealand's police strategic partner, Vodafone, which is now One New Zealand. Right. So. 
the question I'm going to ask you both is, how did you get to this stage of being here at the Evidence-Based Policing Centre? So, Dr Claire, you want to give us a brief sort of bio in to this moment, or are you going to go Sergeant Brian first? Yeah, okay, cool, no worries, right. Okay, um, well, look, I, my, my career in police started in 1998. <clears throat> um, I started my career in uh, Auckland City District and working in the front line in some investigation units. Moved to the Waikato, uh, early 2000s, and uh, did a percent of road policing into the CIB there, spent the next 14 years in CIB, in different work groups there. Uh, anyway, that's in CIB where I, I actually um, got my first taste of EDP. And I was the adult sexual assault coordinator at the time, and reviewing, you know, every file in the district. Um, and uh, it was apparent to me that we needed to do something to prevent that crime from happening in the first place. And so I, I did a SARA uh, prevention project. Yep. Implemented some new uh, strategies and I asked myself, how do I know this is working? So I engaged the Waikato University uh, who helped me evaluate it and uh, it was a really interesting process and uh, my life EVP grew from there. Um, Dr. Claire, how did you get involved in this and the evidence based policing sort of side of it? Yeah, sure. I um, actually am a scientist by trade. Um, I started out um, in marine ecology and biosecurity um, and I moved from there into, well, I've sort of already had involvement in academia, so I've always been a teacher. Um, did about a decade of being a lecturer at AUT University. Um, but um, I ended up actually in policing. I had somewhat of a career shift and then um, I started out in intelligence here in policing um, in Auckland City. Um, then moved um, into our centralised policing unit, um, intelligence unit, and then um, so I got a good sort of grounding uh, in policing. And um, my late husband was police as well for 14 years, so I had a pretty good understanding of the culture. Um, and then thereafter, um, I actually moved into evidence-based policing, which I really found was useful for my academic background. Um, and so I could bring that across into policing uh, and the knowledge I gained as well for intelligence. Um, and so, yeah, I'm quite passionate about EBP. Um, now, I've worked, Brian and I are on the same team. We work in districts. We bring EBP to our districts. Um, and ultimately, it's about, yeah, we're using the best available evidence. Uh, that's, that's not forensic evidence. That's evidence that we get from science uh, and research um, to uh, inform solid decision-making. Yeah, because I think my introduction to evidence-based policing was walking past two intel analysts, oh, yes. uh, seeing what they were doing on computers and going, what do you what do you do here? And they mm. told me, and I was mm. like, you two are going to become my best friends as the community console then, because now I can actually back up some of the stuff I'm doing and quantify it. So, mm. all right. so I guess the next question for the average punter is, and you guys can toss a coin over, over who gets this one, what is evidence-based policing? What does it look like in a nutshell? It's about what works and what doesn't and what looks promising. Um, in my signature, email signature, I've got uh, using the best available evidence uh, to inform decision making. And uh, when we're talking about evidence there, in policing, we, you know, we, we think about evidence as forensic evidence, but what we're talking about here is research evidence. There's also we have, we have four principles of evidence-based policing. That's targeting, testing, tracking, and telling. So we're targeting what we call the power of few, so that small percentage of uh, victims of locations that make up the majority of crime. Mm-hmm. Um, we're testing interventions to see if they work or not. Uh, we're tracking the implementation of those and uh, we're also telling, uh, you know, really getting the message out there that what, what we've done so we can share 
uh, those results. What difference does it really make to the police officer on the street, EPB? Because there'll be lots of people who say, you know, um, and I think I've seen when I look at some of the stats, you know, a police officer on beat patrol, for instance, mm-hmm. has to walk the same beat patrol, I think, if I remember rightly, <coughs> for sort of eight and a half years before mm-hmm. they walk past a burglary. And even then at that stage, they've actually got to realise that what they're seeing is a burglary. So, so how does evidence-based policing help your average street cop on the street? Yeah, well, I guess it's, uh, what, what we're actually talking about with evidence-based policing is actually evidence-based practice. Mm. You know, this isn't unique to police. You know, if you look at medicine, uh, they've been evidence-based for you know, a number of years, probably 50-odd years, something like that. Education, psychology, other disciplines as well. Um, and, and the important thing to remember with evidence-based policing is not to replace experience, uh, but it enhances, that, improves that decision-making um, using the best available evidence. So how does it fit, um, how does it make the difference to the police on, on the street? Well, it offers a different way of approaching policing, which challenges the traditional policing model of, you know, the three R's, which I call them, or Jerry Ratcliffe sort of talks about uh, the three R's of policing, which is random patrol, rapid response, and reactive investigation. So there's been lots of global testing on hotspot policing, for instance. Um, you know, hotspot policing is essentially concentrated areas of crime in specific locations. So we know where to go now, yep. at what time, and importantly, how long we need to stay there uh, due to just ex, you know, extensive testing in different countries um, through rigorous uh, scientific methods. Um, so we know it works uh, in terms of where we should be and what time in conjunction with intelligence. Intelligence forms a really important part of what we do. Uh, the insight and foresight that uh, intelligence offers is really, really important um, and can identify patterns in crime. So. Uh, and if we can identify patterns in crime, we can predict it. If we can predict crime, we can prevent it. Like Minority Report. Hey, go, Dr. C. I can see you wanted well, to mention something. I was just going to add to that as well. So, yep. I mean, perhaps for some some police on the street, you know, some of these science and academic approaches might be a little bit challenging. Not for all, of course. Yeah. Um, so, what a lot of what we do is we bring a lot of our training to our districts as well. Um, training of our people in problem-oriented policing methods. Uh, how to engage with data can be new for some, you know, how to, as in research mm-hmm. data, um, and how to engage with research evidence. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's sort of, yeah, one of the things we do is just show them how the two, the academic side yeah. and the policing side can work in synergy, but also valuing policing experience. Yeah, so, I always used to say to my guys and girls when I was training the neighbourhood policing teams, and I am no way, in no way, shape or form up to the standard that Dr. Claire and Sergeant Brian are, but I always used to say to our older heads, so now you know what you know. Yeah. And they'd be right. like, oh, okay, and now you can quantify it, so it's a good mm-hmm. start. Mm. Um, so let's ask the question then, Dr. Claire, because mm. this is going to be more for you, I guess. Is evidence-based policing a case of academics attempting to over-analyse sort of policing, you know, um, mm. without any sort of uh, disrespect? <laughs> we all know that academics are very good at... Mm. Um, putting things into sort of uh-huh. groups or categories, or this happens because this happens, and yep. so is it a is it is it that or is it something else? Do you think? Um, attempting to overanalyze? No, not at all. Um, it, for us, it's important for EBP to be accessible and usable by everyone mm-hmm. in police. So um, while it's recognised that there are certain ways of doing research, such as something called a randomised control trial and a meta analysis, like a study of studies, that they are a certain gold standard 
in research land and science land, yep. they can't always be done practically and ethically. So we have to utilise EBP where it is most appropriate. So the approaches that we use is something called action research. Um, and we want to conduct studies in New Zealand that make a difference to our communities as one of the key benefits of EBP is actually enhanced community engagement. So that's really important to us. EBP, one of the beauties of it is it promotes transparency, um, accountability, community trust uh, by involving stakeholders in decision-making processes. Um, and on that note as well, we strive for partnerships to be you know, authentic partnerships, not token partnerships. Yeah. We use testing, as Brian's already said, and evaluation to check how research is progressing. We adjust accordingly. Nothing's linear, eh? Where no, people no. are concerned. Yeah. Um, and so we... Um, we processes are iterative if something's not working we tweak it so we have to be agile we aim to make a significant difference through all the research and interventions that we do and that that our you know mentees do those that we are teaching and training um but, but at the end of the day we want everyone in police to be thinking about evidence-based approaches we want to weave it through our organization and all our areas of business but on that note we talk about science evidence that numbers that sort of stuff a lot but I want to just make it clear that we also really value the qualitative side as well we value storytelling that's important to many different cultures mm -hmm. many different people the power of storytelling and the sharing of lived experience is, is so important isn't it because it's more to life than just yeah. boxing people up in numbers and things so we really value the qualitative in conjunction with the quantitative. So a lot of the approaches that we teach or research that we carried out is very much a mixed methods approach. It's not forgetting the people mm. behind the problem. There you go. Anyway, right, here we go. So anyway, just because I'm a Sherlockian and you're going to know this by the next question, Sherlock Holmes once famously said, it is a capital mistake to theorise before one has data and sensibly one begins to twist the facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. It's vitally important to understand your data and use it correctly so that you can use it to drive your business, isn't it? I mean, mm. like you said, Brian, um, same with psychology, same with medicine, same mm. with education, everything else. Is that what evidence-based policing is striving to do, is to understand the data mm. and use it correctly so that we can draw... Um, I, I don't really like policing as a business, cause, mm. but is that what we're aiming to do? We're actually aiming to drive policing better mm. Mm. with evidence-based policing? Absolutely. Um, well, having data is important to understand what your problem is. Yeah. And that's one of the key things about what we do and the training that we do is we, rather than just thinking we have a problem um, and let's just throw a bunch of resources at fixing it, let's actually understand our problem more. Um, we're recognising that police data is sometimes limited. Mm -hmm. um, we know that only 25% of crimes are reported. Um, but this can vary between, obviously, between offence types. Um, the dark figure of crime is what we don't know, and so we need to know how to fill that gap. Um, and to do this, to help us get the best possible data, we can tap into partner agencies. As I said before, that partnerships are so important. Um, we can utilise tools um, that we have at hand, such as surveys, um, whilst engaging with our communities. Um, and we use a particular problem-solving framework that enables us to really drill down into our problems, um, to go beyond the anecdotal, um, to challenge preconceived notions. Often we think, okay, that's a problem. But actually when you drill down into the data, it's actually not a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we strive to get a true picture of the extent of a problem and most importantly, who those problems are affecting. 
So, given the fact that Arthur Conan Doyle, or Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, created or published Sherlock Holmes in 1892, why has it taken police worldwide so long to catch on with this evidence-based policing? I mean, look, we've had smatterings of it in, throughout history. Mm. Uh, New York Police Department with broken windows theory, um, mm. all that yeah. type of stuff, you know. Um, we've had different bits and pieces. Um, but why do you think it's taken so long for policing to try and catch up with... I mean, Sherlock Holmes did it in 1892, for goodness sake. Well, I, I think it's um, a mindset shift, and it's different to the traditional model of policing. You know, like, a, you know, when I started in Frontline, same with you, Brian, is that, uh, you know, it was really random patrolling and uh, when you had downtime and, and reactive policing. And so what, I think anything new just takes time. Even mm -hmm. medicine, like, it's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's still fairly recent in terms of um, the norm in medicine. Um, uh, and I, but, but I think there really is a paradigm shift now, uh, utilising evidence to inform decision making, mm -hmm. and not in policing, but you know a lot of organisations and disciplines. The disciplines, you know, like psychology and education, have taken an, an EBP approach, uh, evidence-based practice approach that is, mm. um, and policing is now making that shift. And, and we've seen the huge value that it it, um, it offers, and it, and it, uh, the results we're getting from, you know, the training we're doing, and um, such, yeah really effective and we should be doing it um, mm. yeah and if you look at the other, other, disciplines, other disciplines that have successfully embedded it um, there's some great results here too now often experienced cops will say oh I knew that or that's an unwritten rule of policing and when they're presented with some um, EBP fact or tip but all right, before I say to you hey do you find that's the case I'm going to be a case study true case study so I had a friend of mine who I used to do martial arts with who used to work for 3M 3M are the people that used to make the bus stops they spent a lot of time doing a lot of academic research because it was costing them lots of money on the frequency of the bus stops being smashed. Mm. He said to me, you're never going to guess the result. And I'm like, uh, two, three days before the full moon, during the full moon phase, <laughs> and two or three days afterwards. And he went, how did you know that? And I said, that's an unwritten rule of policing. So um, do you very often find that that's the case? Like I said to him, that is my experience. But I actually can't quantify that in any way, shape, or form. It's just sort of like... Uh, I just know. Do you find that that's very often the case when you're talking EPB to lots of sort of experienced cops? They will tell you stuff, but not sort of know the know, if you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I suppose, I mean, we've offered that occasionally, and um, you know, they may have heard of studies uh, that have had good outcomes, you know, like the COPA curve, for instance, where uh, it demonstrates that, you know, that 14, 15 minute um, time in a hotspot is, is the best bang for bucket, uh, really efficiency there. Um, and then that's great because it means the studies are getting out there from whatever form uh, it's getting released. But, the, but that knowledge is, is getting out there. We want that to happen more, essentially. EBP doesn't replace officer experience at all. Um, like I think I mentioned before, it's super important and it's, it's part of it. So the knowledge gained from those studies just enhances our experience, really. Yeah. Enhances police work. Yeah. Is it a case of every police officer becoming better at evidence-based policing or just knowing the basics? So that they can set up, some, say for instance, a problem-solving method or analyse data to see where things are at in their community or something else. Like, look, let's be honest, um, if I think to myself as my time in, as a community constable in Otahu, I got kind of cheeky uh, because I would go and find academics because I knew, hey, there's my money, mm -hmm. but there's my bang for buck, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but lots of police <laughs> officers, even today, will still look at academics and go, oh, you know, this, you know, this isn't going to... What, what I do so is it just a bit a matter of giving those 
police officers a little bit of evidence-based policing knowledge so that they can become better at their jobs, they can problem-solve better, um, they can analyse data and see where things are. I would say yes and yes, like it's both. Yeah. Um, the more our our officers understand evidence-based practice, the better. Uh, and this is what we are currently focused on in our own work in districts, mm-hmm. you know, training the frontline problem-solving frameworks and EBP practice, you know, making it accessible and enabling community-focused projects that are informed by evidence uh, and make a real difference. Now, one of the big issues with evidence-based policing is lack of awareness to the research mm-hmm. and the access to research evidence. And the, uh, again, you know, um, there are places overseas, I'm a Google fiend mm-hmm. on this stuff, but um, where, you know, you'll be charged to access the information, which I understand yeah. people have got to make a living, that's all good. How do we bridge that issue um, and yeah. make it sort of more better for our troops, I guess, for want of better words. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, paywalls and things, yeah, do exist with yep. accessing literature, but here at Police, um, it's actually not as accessible, and inaccessible as some might think, mm-hmm. so we're very fortunate we have an internal library at Police, um, and, de- and a very dedicated and very talented um, knowledge and information team, so we're lucky to have them. Um, our people are able to access a wealth of information from both internal research reports that are done you know, in police, by us, in partnership with other agencies sometimes, just depends what it is. Um, evaluations, we produce a lot of our own as well, uh, to a gold mine of studies housed in like those research repositories, research databases. And our library has access to that. Um, and if we can't get to something because there's a paywall, you know, the library will be able to, the mm-hmm. knowledge and information team will be able to get that to us, uh, for us. Um, either free or at a very low cost. Um, so we in ABP are constantly also adding to our own and research repository as well. We're building our own knowledge bank um, in our own training in districts. We teach our people the value of accessing literature. For some, they've done it before. They've done university study, for example. Others, it's a whole new ball game. Yep. Um, but it helps them to inform their own initiatives and projects. So we teach them the value of, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, looking at what works, um, seeing what's done before. We have access to, you know, not only reports and journal articles and things like that, but also these incredible What Works databases out there, um, such as there's one called the College of Policing in the UK, Arizona State University. Um, they have, yeah, again, a lot. It's a lot of free stuff out there that our people can get their hands on. So part of the work that we do as well is demystifying that a little bit, mm-hmm. showing people where to go. Um, and just yeah, showing them how it's, it's not such a daunting thing, or we've actually got access to a lot of stuff. And using the right shade of crayon when I email you, Dr. Clear, and <laughs> saying, "Can you tell me this?" Yeah, that's uh, right, that's right. especially for me. Yeah. So Lawrence R. Sherman wrote in the paper, "The Rise of Evidence-Based Policing: Targeting, Testing, and Tracking." In 1975, there was almost no targeting of patterns or predictions of crime and disorder, no testing of what worked best to prevent or solve crimes and problems, or uh, much tracking or managing of what police were doing, when, where, how, in relation to any specific objectives. Most police agencies lacked computers. Now, we all know that policing has improved hugely since then, or since the 1970s. What's been the biggest hurdle for you as evidence-based policing centre staff, I guess, to breaking the wall when it, ta- when it comes to talking to a street police staff member who, when you turn up and say, hey, here I am, here's my pretty PowerPoint, I've got some really cool um, analytics going on here, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, I've done it in training, you can see the front row's got their arms folded, the second row's sort of kind of halfway there, <laughs> yep. and you're like, oh, this is going to be a tough week. So what's, the, what's normally the biggest barrier for you? 
But before we get the answer to that question, let's hear from Jono at Tactical Solutions. I wanted to talk about one of your favorite EDC bags, Brian, the Rush 24 2.0. It's been redesigned with a padded laptop compartment and a few upgraded extras. It's part of the Rush series with four different solutions to choose from. Come check them out at one of our tactical stores in Auckland or Wellington or online at store.tactical.co.nz. I think it's their knowledge of what EBP is, you know, and their understanding of it. Yep. Um, and it's really um, more accessible than what people might think. And there's, you know, there's online resources and obviously within police, we've got a number of resources on the internet that people can use. But if I look at, um, you know, Alex Murray, for instance, the founder and chair of the Society of Evidence-Based Policing in the UK, you know, he says that anyone can, um, uh, can use the principles of EBP. Um, you know, do your own experiment. It doesn't have to be a randomized control trial. It can be something as simple as, you know, on a night shift, um, he tells about a story of a, a neighborhood that has, you know, dishonesty offending happening in it and putting an a, a, a intervention in on one side of the, of the area or the hotspot and then having the other side as, as, a, as a control group. Yeah. So yeah, you're using those principles of you know, a treatment group and a control group, and um, yeah, anyone can, can, can do that. Uh, you know, if you think about the, the targeting and testing um, and tracking, you know, it's, it's a really important process to think about just targeting of a problem area, you know, testing an intervention, whether, and hopefully that's backed by evidence, but it, it may be something quite innovative, you know, yeah. it's something quite novel and, and, that, and that's fine as well. But the important thing is to evaluate it, you know, to see if it actually worked or not, yeah. uh, and then telling people about it. Um, but I, I would say give it a go. Uh, we only learn as, as we go. It's, um, you know, not to be scared of it. Um, you don't have to be attaining you know, maximum rigour and academic glory as you Sorry. like. Um, <laughs> you'll, you'll learn as you go and I guess it's like you said, just do it. The thing that's always amazed me about evidence-based policing and you guys can take this as a tick in your box as well, just quietly, is everybody, and I mean everybody, because I've emailed um, professors overseas mm -hmm. and <laughs> said, hey, can you give me a hand with this? And people are like, wow, you want to know about this stuff? And I'm like, yeah, yes. please, that'll be awesome. Yes. So everybody's really, really helpful. Um, question for you. What do you both do to switch off from your work and look after your mental health? Because yeah, if you're not training, mm. you're researching. If you're not researching, you're delivering. If you're not delivering, you'll be... You'll, I'm, guess you've all both got sort of 10 or 15 side projects going on mm -hmm. and then there's that annoying guy asking you to be on podcasts as well so <laughs> mm -hmm. so what do you do to switch off for your mental health it's a question i always ask all my guests so dr claire you want to go first yeah um i i find solace in the ocean um i i go to the beach and I bushwalk, I've got a 16 year old, and he and I just, yeah, I, I suppose I find solace in nature and that's where I recalibrate nice. uh, I, and switch off from work, from research and things like that. So yeah. I have to tell you about a book called Life Under the Rocks, but that'll be after the podcast. It's Ooh, all about the life, life cycle of octopuses, it's yeah. amazing. <clears throat> I haven't heard of that uh, Brian, what do, you, what do you do to switch off and look after your mental health? You've been in the job almost as long as I have, so what do you do to switch off? Yeah, I mean, I. I, follow, I try and follow those um, you know, basic principles of uh, exercise and you know, eating well and, and trying to get sleep. But to be fair, and I've done postgraduate study this year in, in crime science, and so trying to fit that in with um, you know, busy work life. And uh, my wife's a medical specialist, and she works long hours, and got two children as well. So it's, it's, I find it quite challenging. But I really try and you know, prioritise that. Uh, sometimes it's okay, but it's, I, I think I've recognised that actually it's something I, I, I need to get better at. Yeah. What's been the piece of evidence-based police research 
that's had you the most excited in the last 12 to 18 months? It can be internationally or nationally. Um, well, I think for me, it's uh, we've been in a district this year delivering our um, evidence-based problem-oriented policing mm-hmm. uh, training, and at the start of this year, and you know we've seen the fruits of that training mm. come to to fruition with evidence-based problem-oriented policing awards last week, where two of those projects won their, their category. So, for me, that's really exciting yeah. um, to see our frontline colleagues doing this stuff. Uh, you know, utilising evidence, utilising lit searches um, <clears throat> to understand what works, finding mm. what informs their responses and assessing and evaluating their work. You know, awesome to see that framework uh, in place um, and applying the scientific method. You know, it's, uh, it's really mm. cool to see. Great. Um, yeah, so that's, to be honest, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Like after 20 odd years yeah. in a response role in police uh, to be prevention focused now, and uh, to prevent crime and reduce crime so that people don't experience the trauma uh, that, that goes with that, yeah, that's that's the ultimate for me and that's what gets me to bed. Like I always say, because you know, I've done community policing a long time, mm. I love listening to detectives when they find preventative and prevention policing. Mm. Yep. Welcome to the light side. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yep. Dr. Claire, same for you or not? Oh, look, 100% the same yep. for me. Yeah, okay. exactly. That's our bread and butter. Right. Um, it's passionate about it. So from my time as a neighbourhood policing team trainer, community cop trainer and everything else, one of the biggest issues we ever had or I ever had was the analysis phase of evidence-based policing. All right, the job's done, the dust is settling, the crime's gone down or an area's been beautified or something else and some poor turkey mm-hmm. gets left the numbers mm-hmm. and hey, uh, somebody wants that analysed, if you just crunch a few numbers there and so we can show them how the crime rate's dropped or how the mm-hmm. um, public perception in this area mm-hmm. is really good. And they were just like, uh, yeah, where do I start with this? Yeah. How do you make that part of evidence-based mm. policing more attractive? Look, if we're honest about it, mm-hmm. that's a part that has kind of let police officers down the long because we are very good at job to job to job to yep. job, but not actually looking back in retrospect and going, hey, mm. we've done that really well. Mm. We need to actually tell some people. So how do we make that more attractive for people? Um, <clears throat> one of the beauties of EBP is that it doesn't operate in a silo. It's yep. not you know here on its own. Um, we have to engage with other work groups. We partnership. We have we partner with prevention team, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> Intel, into our work. So everyone's got. It's a multidisciplinary approach. We can't do it on its own. So we make friends in all those areas, um, and we've got some wonderful friends, and we we um, use their talents to help us with that sort of thing. Um, if our projects in the districts require say an analyst to come in and do something we can tap into that part of our partnership um, and because we need their capabilities to help us with what we do so um, if that answers a question yeah yeah, it's partnership that's key here and we just draw on talent as we need it Um, people you know um, other work groups um, and that's yeah at the end of the day we can't operate on our own I'd just like to add to that Mm. uh, yeah certainly intelligence you know Mm. good relationships with intelligence uh, it's really important. Mm. You know, the insight um, and foresight that uh, they can be offered um, or can be gained uh, from Intel is just hugely valuable in, in that mm. phase, you know, that scanning and analysis phase. Yeah. Um, yeah, identifying those crime patterns, which uh, are really important. Now, you gave us a little bit of a brief bio each, but what led you to where you are now? What? So, uh, so if I ask you first, Brian, before you did evidence-based policing, what role were you in in the police? And kind of what was your jump from evidence-based policing? Because evidence-based policing in New Zealand has been around for a few years, but we've mm. never actually given it the focus like an evidence-based policing centre, for instance. Yep. So the evidence-based policing policing centre pops its head up 
and there's a, a role there for you. So mm. where where did you come from, and what was the interest in the evidence-based policing for you, Brian? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> when I gave the example prior about when I was in CIB, you know, largely reactive um, work group, and but you know being in the child protection space in the adult sexual assault uh, area, seeing the you know the, the devastation that um, survivors of that crime go under. I was also a specialist in level three interviewer for twelve years as well, so I interviewed you know um, survivors of, se- of this sexual assault. And so you see it firsthand and you see the devastation it has, the trauma. Mm. And so for me, it was about, um, I became really passionate about prevention mm-hmm. and putting in a, um, a sexual assault prevention focused uh, intervention yeah. was really important for me. And, and so I, I, I did some research myself um, and had a look at what being evidence-based was all about. Uh, yeah, utilize some of that knowledge to help with my um, project. Um, but you know, I thought well, it's hard to measure success with prevention because you know it's, it's prevention, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we only have a small uh, amount of the data, and particularly with sexual assault, actually reporting rates of that is very low, yeah. eight, nine percent, something like that. Uh, but yeah, using the New Zealand Crime and Victim Survey, we really understand the bigger picture of you know it's more like 150, 170 sort of thousand uh, sexual assaults per year. So. Uh, so, so it was really cool to do that, um, but, but I, th- I thought to myself, how can we, how, how do I know it's working? And um, so I engaged a university and got some master students to evaluate it and I uh, was involved in that process and really got me under- understanding what evidence-based practice was. Um, so after CIB, I moved into intelligence uh, and, you know, as roles and supervisor in Waikato District Headquarters, and I was there through Operation Deans and other operations that came from that. Then moved into Intelligence Collections Coordinator, role in major events. And um, yeah, that was all about, you know, the inside and foresight as well, and how we can prevent um, being at the front of the curve and that decision-maker advantage. But when this role popped up at the Evidence-Based Policing Centre, it really, um, you know, part of my desire to get into that space and learn more about it and and yeah prevention focused work yeah. is, uh, is awesome what about you dr c because like you said you know you've been part of the police family for a long time now um so how did you get involved in evidence-based policing mm. you, um what was your jump from sort of okay i'm I'm going to go work for these because you were previously working for us anyway. But yeah, yeah. you know, okay, here's where I want to go. Mm. So. Yeah, so I was, I was happily ensconced in Intel. Um, yep. Always, I really enjoyed it. Um, that was fantastic. But one day, um, uh, one of the bosses from the centre, um, from Evidence Based Policing Centre, came to our unit and talked about what they do um, and was looking for some district champions. And so. I thought, oh, wow, um, this is so academic. This is where I come from, <laughs> as much as I enjoyed my time in Intel very much. Um, and then um, I found out that there was a role for an evaluation advisor within the centre. And I thought, oh, this is, you know, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't planning on leaving Intel, but um, I thought that maybe I can use my skills in academic the academic world, you know, bring them across, and it really sort of. Oh, I thought, oh, this is actually quite interesting. Um, you know, I use them more, um, you know, to 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 work in this area. So, um, yeah. So I ended up. Um, I thought I would just give it a crack and apply for this role in evaluation, and um, yeah, I got it. And um, uh, I, yeah, I've sort of, as I said, I've been there ever since. I did two years in evaluation um, before moving into this. Uh, district role we're called network leads uh, we bring yeah, EVP to the districts and um, the, do the training that we've talked about now um, so we're conduits between 
the EBPC Centre and our districts. Um, and my passion lies with supporting the districts. You know, I'm all about supporting the front line. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, I found found my feet in Boom. EBP. Did you get the lectures still as well, so it's all good. Yeah, uh, I right. do. So Denzel Washington's <coughs> character, Alonzo, in the movie, famous movie Training Day, mm. famously says, this shit's chess, it's, it ain't checkers. Like any game, is there a real danger if we only focus on certain pieces in the game we'll lose, uh, or in this case, on an aspect of policing, say, psychological profiling, forensics. Um, so forensics was famous uh, for cases in overseas for a wee while there, you know, everybody had to have like what they call the CSI effect. They had to have a, a scene of the crimes officer or a fingerprint expert there because they'd be talking to them about ballistics and everything else. Um, is there a danger with evidence-based policing that if we lose sight uh, that evidence-based policing is one tool in a very large toolbox that police and policing or police officers have and and it, and while it's really, really good, uh, I say that because I've used it and I know it and I love it, it's not the silver bullet to solve all crime and all police matters, is it? Yeah, well, I think it's um, important that uh, we talked about, you know, multidisciplinary approaches and uh, evidence-based policing is, is certainly part of that. If you look at the critical command information, for instance, you know, we've got intelligence, performance, EVP is in there, um, and collectively... Uh, we'll make better decisions because of it uh, rather than working alone. Yeah. As one piece of the pie, uh, Dan Waldy, the Director of National Intelligence, talks about he designed a, a pie model which is intelligence prevention and EBP working together. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's where we need to be. But and I think, um, you know, Jerry Ratcliffe talks about the future of policing being harm focused, problem orientated, intelligence led, and evidence based. And I think that's just so true, you know, like yeah. moving forward that we work collectively together <coughs> for great results. Yeah. So when we look overseas, what are some of the surreal, some of the real great success stories that evidence-based policing has been used for overseas that you just sort of roughly off the top of your head, stories where you've gone, ah, oh, okay, cool, here's a, here's a good story. There's a lot of amazing work that's been done overseas and a lot that has been, uh, is still going. Um, so the, the repository of data, basis data, what works is growing all the time. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say look, there's many um, great success stories around procedural justice. Yeah, and when we look at, very um, much. You know, what procedural justice is, how that fits into police legitimacy, which underpins policing by consent. Yeah, there's a lot of good work going in that space. Um, yeah, hotspots policing's been yeah. you know really tried and, and, and tested in a lot of different countries and areas. There's focused deterrence strategies. You know, for offender management. Yep. There's a lot of global policing research out there. Um, many success stories. Evidence-based policing is is an internationally recognised method of making decisions around what works in policing. Mm-hmm. It's ensuring policing strategy, operations, tactics are based on the best possible evidence from here and overseas. Information, crime science, problem-solving methods to guide and inform decisions. But does it allow for an out-of-box strategy like, say, for instance, police athletic clubs, yep. Or let's say maybe there's one of the comatos at the local Marais says, hey, I've got a great uh, fishing club up here. You could bring some of those kids that have been causing you problems up here and they could learn how to fish mm-hmm. and do that type of stuff. Does it allow for that as well? Yes, it absolutely does. EBP fosters, supports and values innovation big time. Yep. So trying new things that have never been tried before, we often encourage people to be bold. And you know, if you've got an idea, roll with it. Like what Brian said before about what DCC Alex Murray in the UK had said just try it you know Um, certainly um, look to the literature to see you know what's been done before but if nothing has been if if this if 
so idea X has not been done before, give it a crack. Yeah. But just make sure you evaluate it and then tell about it later on. And that's so important. Um, and so in New Zealand, we're seeking to build our own What Works evidence base um, that has been built on the foundations of the unique context of policing here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, because it's so unique, isn't it? Socio-politically, socio-culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, innovation fosters innovation in big time. Absolutely. What are some of the priorities for evidence-based policing in New Zealand at the present moment? Because mm-hmm. it's really, really hard. If something happens and let's say it hits the front page of a mm. paper somewhere, you can't just drop everything and go right. We're going to start evidence-based policing on this now, unless of course you've had a research paper in the past or something. Mm. Um, so you're obviously having to set some priorities a little bit mm. ahead. So. Can you give us sort of two or three sort of priorities that mm. you've got at the moment for evidence-based policing? Uh, we are, we actually do have capacity to mobilise to you know find new information really pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So we do have that cap- uh, capability within the centre. Uh, but our priorities um, are summarised you know at a very high level at our strategic research agenda. Yep. Um, so just as an overview, as you asked there, um, so we aim to connect with our communities. That's critical. We aim to forecast and prevent crime and harm and enhance our organisational capability and strengthen our sector partnerships. So those are the main sort of, you know, high-level priorities. Yeah. Yeah. So when we started Neighbourhood Policing Teams in New Zealand, a lot of the issues communities presented were issues that police, to be fair, hadn't even considered as Mm. issues. Um, I think, for example, um, the signal quorum, and if I get this right... um, you can correct me, Doctor. See if oh, I good. get this wrong. Right. So, signal crime is a if you look down a street and there's broken fences, the letterboxes are tipped over, and there's broken glass in the street. That signal crime. You look at it, you go, "Oh, that's not a street I want to go down, live in, or even maybe drive through." That's kind of signal crime. It just makes you feel a little bit uneasy, I guess, so to speak. Mm. I got mm. that right. Yeah, it's a social reaction to crime and disorder. There you go. Yeah. Look at that, right? So, so one town that we did some neighbourhood policing, community policing in was their big issue was there were lots of houses at the end of one particular street that needed their lawns mowing and their rubbish was always left unattended. Mm. So I kid you not, a couple of cops got out there with their gummies on, mowed the lawns, Mm. picked up the rubbish, fixed a couple of fence panels and it was easily solved. And they went from, oh wow, check this out to, my goodness, the police are amazing, they're doing stuff and that street there has never ever been safer for the sake of a couple of blades of grass to be fair. right? Is it important that we remember, and I'm You've already given me the answer to this, I think. Hmm. That remember one of Sir Robert Peel's principles is when it comes to evidence-based policing that the police are the public and that the public are the police. How does evidence-based policing listen to communities that it serves or is a part of, I guess? Oh, I suppose we, we can both address this. Yeah, um, so listening to communities is so important. As I said, you know, I think I've said this a bit earlier, um, you know, it's engaging with our communities and mm-hmm. partnership with our communities. Um, so the EBP problem-oriented frameworks that we use encourages all our practitioners to under, undertake in-depth problem scanning, you know, before leaping straight into strategies. In scanning, um, you know, one might look at data police partners have held, for example, um, finding out number of burglaries in an area or figures about truancy or something like that. But that's only half the story, isn't it? Because um, engaging with the public is so important. So as I said, you know, often we might think we understand a problem, but in actual fact, the public might have other opinions about it. So 
we seek to understand lived experience. We ask people about their concerns and their fears. We talk to people. And as, uh, there's many ways that we can do this. Um, one of my favourite methods is called a neighbourhood engagement survey. You know, we there actually you get go. out yep. there and yeah, talk to people. It allows us to really explore public opinions. And that way, our responses and our tactics that we later deploy are fit for purpose. They're focused. Uh, and it avoids us throwing the kitchen sink approach. But I'll just defer to Brian now just to talk about that, um, that awesome comment about police as public. Yeah, yeah. I suppose what we're talking about is you know policing by consent, and mm. what depends policing by consent is legitimacy. Four key parts to or principles to legitimacy, and that's um, yeah, we've got to be lawful, we've got to be effective, uh, distributive justice, and what we call procedural justice. There's been a lot of global research done on procedural justice and how effective that is. You know, if you look at that, we are members of the community that wear a blue shirt, yep. and um, that gives us powers. And so the um, really important in a democratic society that. Uh, we carry out our duties in a fair and reasonable mm. way. You know, really work with the community and gain their support um, for us to do our job. Yeah, because otherwise, it's like I used to say to the community cops and the community cops course. It's like going into a takeaways and saying, "Oh, you'll have a hamburger, please." And they go, "Well, sorry, we've only got fish burgers." Yeah, but I'm really here for the hamburger. You've got it up on the menu there, so mm. I should be able to have the fish burger. And they're like, "No, nah, sorry, we've only got the hamburger." Yep. And yeah, mm. so yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah. That listening to the community is really, really important. Yes. Prevention is always a goal of every police department force worldwide. How does evidence-based policing help with that? And mm. just off the top of your head, do you have a practical example where evidence-based policing has helped and you sort of, you know, you've gone, oh, okay, this has led on to bigger and better things? Well, I suppose if I refer back to, you know, Robert Peel's principles and, you know, his first principle is about preventing crime, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we use crime science and I've done a postgraduate study in crime science this year through uh, University of Waikato you know which crime science is, is an evidence based problem solving field um, you know the three pillars uh, of crime science are reducing crime focus on reducing crime you know thinking scientifically uh, and taking a multidisciplinary pro- approach a lot, of the, a lot of the responses are crime reduction um, that come out of, out of uh, you know the models like SARA and PANDA um, and really focus on Reducing crime and preventing crime, supported by evidence of what works, of course. Yeah, it's through my through my studies this year. It's been really interesting. I've I've had uh, Dr. Lisa Thompson at Waikato University and Professor Richard Wortley as the course uh, you know lecturers and, and teachers. And uh, you know, reading the work that they've done in the crime prevention space is inspirational, and it's a real privilege privilege to learn from them. You know, the experience and the insight they give is, is really awesome. So. Taking that approach of crime science, uh, SARA, which is a action research model, um, and really putting some good prevention uh, strategies in, enabling districts to do that through our training. And we've seen some really good examples um, of chronic vehicle crime, for instance, uh, is one of, the, one of the projects that came out from from uh, Medical district. Um, putting in, you know, changing that environment. So we, we really, crime science is about, you know, uh, place-based offending as the crime event itself. There's not much that we can do about that distal causes of crime, which is the offender. Um, it's a really important part to, to be done, but actually crime science focuses on the crime event itself, and if we can change that environment so it's less appealing to commit a crime, mm. you know, if we're looking at rational, rational choice perspective, yeah. there's a cost-benefit analysis that takes place, and if it's too hard or um, you know, too risky to commit a crime, there's not many rewards there for them, offenders will change their mind and not commit crime in the first place. So, 
Yeah, some really interesting um, models there uh, and theories that um, that we utilise and um, yes, yeah, certainly we, we look to prevent crime wherever we can. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be a big expensive fix either. It can no. be, you know, as simple as cutting down a hedge so you've got more capable guardians who can keep an eye on an area um, or changing out-of-date faded signage and things like that. It can be fairly simple. Yeah, schools open out their playgrounds at the weekend so they have capable guardians. Yeah. And people are looking out for them and, yeah, that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. 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 When you mention Evidence-Based Policing Centre, everybody naturally flicks to one of the world's greatest science fiction writers of all time. I'm biased, but he is. Uh, Philip K. Dick, Minority Report. Oh, my goodness, they're talking about predictive policing. Right, now, does the evidence-based policing centre do sort of aspects of like predictive policing and by that I'm guessing um, if I use if we use an example you start crunching data you can actually find out you know mm-hmm. uh, when crimes are going to be committed what time and yep. that type of stuff mm-hmm. um, the one that always gets lots of people is uh, 73% of burglaries are normally committed at night yes right and everybody goes oh well mm-hmm. that's okay yeah um, so it kind of you lose that theory of, you know, daytime burglaries. I'm not saying they don't happen, mm. but, you know, there's one chance in four, roughly, of it happening as opposed to three chances out of Anyway, so is that what we're talking about when we're talking about predictive policing? That takes me to my crime science stuff. Mm. Uh, learning there we go, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think about crime pattern theory in that case. Mm. And then crime yep. pattern theory is, is a way of explaining how people move around and commit crimes in certain areas. Um, and intelligence support here is really, uh, really important yeah. um, to identify those cr- crime patterns. Yeah. You know, if we identify those crime patterns, you know, we can predict. If we can predict, we can prevent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and crime concentrates. Uh, it concentrates in locations. It concentrates um, in time. Um, you know, place like hot spots, for instance. Uh, targets, so it's hot products. Mm. Um, you know, facilities and victims, so repeat victims. And once we know where it concentrates, it helps us understand uh, what is going on and we can target our resources uh, appropriately. And if we can identify patterns, we can you know, say we, we can predict and prevent. Um, so certainly uh, crime pattern, patterns in crime is what we mm. uh, are looking for. Yeah, and there's lots of models and things that our friends in Intel um, and other analysts can use. Our RISTIC analysis, for example, for yeah, just you know, a part of predicting and timings and things like that. There's some really good stuff out there. So again, it's partnership so big for us, you yeah. know, across work groups. Because crime is not random, right? No, it's, no. Uh, it's right. concentrated. And as I'm sitting there listening to you and then listening to you, Dr. Claire, and I'm like, one of my questions should have been was, how many acronyms for policing do you have in your head? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing there'd be a few. But anyway, there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. That's all good. We'll just leave it at that. Um, so the evidence-based policing awards uh, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, have just been held. Yes. So you want to tell us who the big winners were, yeah. and very broadly speaking, what some sure. of the issues they were dealing with. Oh, that was a great, great week. Yeah, um, so three exceptional projects came out of Counties Monaco. We had five finalists in the end, and there were um, three winners and one um, Supreme Award winner. Winners came out of Counties uh, this year. Um, so that was the Evidence-Based Policing Problem-Oriented Policing Awards, the EB Pop Awards. There's another acronym yeah, there you for go, you boom, there. Yeah. Um, so the projects focused on a range of issues um, from chronic vehicle crime social cohesion and community engagement and focusing on at-risk tamariki under 14 to re-engage with education, family and community. So that's sort of a, yep. a very o- overview of uh, what they were about. But the projects were exceptional, some really good 
evidence-based policing practice was put into place for those projects. And I think one of my old teachers, Inspector Richard Wilkie, was involved in one he of them. He was so indeed. There you go, Supreme shout, Award winner. Big shout out to the Koru there. All right, so um, when you look at crimes of the future, and this is a theoretical question, what are some of the crimes you think will be existing 50 years from now that don't exist? I guess, for me, the obvious one is, with AI being around, it ain't mm. gonna, it's not going to be too hard for us to create a Dr. Clear, and Dr. Clear can say pretty much anything we want. Yep. Uh, if we make that a world political <clears throat> leader, then things start to get a bit scary. But mm. what are some of the crimes you think might be around? Just off the top I, of your head. I, I think certainly that cyberspace, you know, the cybercrime stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's, yeah, that's a growing um, concern. Um, and, and new things like the metaverse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how do we understand the metaverse and what crimes will take place and how will we police it? Yep. Uh, and I think it's just a whole lot of unknown, you know, from those areas. Yep. How much of evidence-based policing do you think we can use from overseas? And does New Zealand have a, its own distinctive flavour of evidence-based policing? Because there are so many people who go, just use the broken windows theory like they did yeah. in New York. And I'm like, yeah. Um, so I've been to New York a couple of times and I've spoken to lots of cops there and they're mm. like, you know, it was thousands of police officers out on the street. We've got a cop for every block in the street. Mm. Uh, they know all the shopkeepers and everything else. But when talking to the cops on the ground, they're like, my God, we're so bored here. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been on this block for five years. Yeah. Um, you know, and just they were, yeah, it was sad, heartbreaking. Yeah. But is there, so can we use lots of the evidence-based mm-hmm. policing from overseas? And have we got our own distinctive flavour of evidence-based policing? Yeah, I, I think uh, we really need to start thinking around that problem-solving aspect. And, you know, when we're looking at problem-solving, for instance, we talk about specificity. And because every problem is specific to its, you know, its own whole mm-hmm. lot of different different things, and so the response to that uh, needs to be, you know, really thought through really and tailored. directed, tailored to mm-hmm. to that uh, that problem specific. Um, but certainly, we we can definitely lo- uh, use the uh, evidence from overseas. Um, it can inform us, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, when you look, yeah, at we, we look mm. for, for, for any research from anywhere in the world to yeah. help us understand, you know, mm. what works and what doesn't, mm. because there's a whole lot of knowledge there, eh? That. Uh, has been mm-hmm. tested and we can actually see if it actually works or not. Right. And you know, just um, considering though that what might work overseas yes. may not work here. But yeah. that's the importance of testing the new intervention mm. to see if it actually does work here. Yeah. Yeah. We always start from the general. You yeah. know, you've got an issue, go straight to the literature, see what's been yeah. done, mm-hmm. and then you narrow it down to specific. You know, and will this work in the unique context of Aotearoa New Zealand? Yeah. Do you think artificial intelligence mm-hmm. is going to play a big part in evidence-based policing? in the future well it's a it's a big question isn't it Brian? Yeah. Um, yeah. so it's a good question evidence-based policing involves using empirical research and mm-hmm. that's research that has been um, obtained scientifically um, through experimentation um, and the like um, so EBP involves using empirical research and data to inform decision making I suppose in the future there might be a place for this to be enhanced by AI mm-hmm. um, perhaps through the analysis of vast amounts of data so we can look at more in a short space of time to look for trends patterns uh, potential areas of concern or something else uh, but for now we do not use it as there are just simply too many uncertainties as I'm mm-hmm. sure you appreciate um, it's with AI, it's critical to implement it ethically. Uh, you've got to uh, ensure transparency, fairness, accountability. So for now, the answer to your question is simply maybe. We'll um, wait and see. Watch this wait and see. Yeah, yeah, there's just too many unknowns at this point where EBP is concerned or indeed any other field and discipline, isn't it? 
it's um it's not wrong it's like no. yeah script writers to yeah Okay, so lucky last question for you then. So Forbes magazine recently wrote an article on Trek 10's trends in law enforcement. For instance, the use of like smart watches or Alexa being Mm. used in evidence in court. Because those, as much as we hate to say it, those uh, devices, those things, they're always collecting data on everything from what's Dr. Claire's heart rate compared to Constable Bryan's when they're out for a run. Okay, well, clearly she's like 23 years younger than he is and fitter and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah, no worries. So do you think that this type of data or information is going to assist evidence-based policing broadly in the future? So, for instance, like it is in the medical field. So um, with the smart watches, you know, um, some of the insurance companies are using some of the smart watcher device uh, data that's now mm-hmm. coming out and sort of saying, well, we know that these people are at the biggest risk of coronary uh, heart disease or mm. um, you know we can see how inactive that person is so potentially we look at all the data yeah uh, and it's quantified as opposed to it's just something that we've kind of known for the last 20 years so do you think that that is going to be something that will assist evidence-based policing in the future that sort of I'm not going to say it's like a big data collection because it's not and it doesn't affect anybody's privacy but it's just that all that quantitative information that's coming out that sort of says hey People do this. People do that. That type of stuff. Well, I think um, when I think about you know technology and and, and policing, I, I think about body worn cameras. You know, and there's been a lot of um, you know, evidence based policing across the, the globe is involved in many studies on tech and law enforcement. Mm-hmm. But um, your body worn cameras, a lot of studies globally, uh, different countries have have you know done some good studies on it um, with various results as well. Um, we don't use these in New Zealand, but other countries have them as part of their standard equipment for officers interacting with the public. So research in this area focuses on things like impact, the impact of body-worn cameras might have on various outcomes, such as the quality of officer um, you know, community in, uh, engagement, mm-hmm. um, and measured, as measured by the communication that takes place, the professionalism, procedural justice, as we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Dr. C, you got anything to add oh, or not? Yeah, I suppose, like AI, it's... I suppose it's early days um, and how it will be involved. Their ethics is a big consideration as well. Mm. People's protection of their privacy and things like that mm. would need to be considered. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, as Brian said, the tech is out there in law enforcement and like the, with the likes of body-warm cameras as part of kit. Yep. Yeah. Um, obviously, that's not here yet, but, um, yeah, cameras on equipment, things like that. So recently there was a report by Deloitte that came out with a bit of not... I'm not going to say slating because it wasn't, but it was sort of like, here's what we think are some of the trends for law enforcement and everything else. Did you think that that particular report was a fair assessment of the way that law enforcement's going or not? You want to read that little bit out there, Dr. Claire, that you got in the blue there? blue there. The future of policing will be determined by how departments take action in four areas. Using data to improve policing itself, finding the right talent, giving them the space to innovate and understanding how organisational culture aids all of the above. Yeah, look, I'd say that's, um, yeah, that's absolutely good. I mean, yeah, finding the right people is really important. You know, giving them the space to innovate is really oh. important. You know, that's um, some really good leadership there. And our culture is really important too. So I'd say, that, yeah, that's true of police, but also Any. You know, other... Pretty much, other, yeah. Other yeah. organisations, you know, just to um, get really good things going and trust your people and yep. um, to do... do Good things. Thanks. It's been enlightening. Uh, it's also probably been really good for you guys to go, here's what we do. Because yeah. I know that lots of people, members of public, as mm. well as cops, go, 
yeah, no, I'm not going to do that type of stuff because those kind of people scare me. Uh, <laughs> and they really, you aren't that scary at all. Oh, uh, good. Yeah, if you talk to people, you'll get to know them. That's the way it works. Mm. Yeah, and it's also a really, really good insight for members of public to be able to hear and go, okay, this is what the police are doing sometimes because they sometimes can't see the full picture and the more they hear about some of these units that, mm. and I'm not going to say you are... Uh, people who live in the shadows because you're not but you know yeah. you're not sort of no. out on the streets I'm and people yeah and people yeah. don't see you and go hey that's such and such so mm. it's a really good um enlightening way to get in um thank you for your time um thank and you. more importantly thank you for your work mm. and if you are a police officer uh and you are listening to this or basically you're in any other field give it a crack um like dr claire said you know you cannot uh, let yourself down and you'll be amazed and I mean this nicely Dr. Claire because I know academics mm -hmm. are, are humans too Thank you. you'll be amazed at the number of academics that go wow you're taking some interest in my work 100% yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and away they go um, yeah. I have made many friends with people who are doctors mm -hmm. who I should not even be in the same room with it's like comparing a strategically <laughs> shaved orangutan to uh, <laughs> Brainiac uh, but uh, you know we have had some great conversations and um, some theories about different stuff that have been going on and come up with some really really good solutions that I've been able to implement so appreciate your time both thank you very much thank you Brian thanks Brian I just want to say too that um, thanks for the good work that you do yes uh, my daughter still she's 15 now but um, when she was young she was watching Brian and Bobby and still and she still knows how to get, get be safely get out of a um, <laughs> A mall, if there's any problems. Oh, that's so. good. That's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. so that's all getting through. So that's yeah, good. It's, I, I have to be honest. It's more scary when they come up to you when you're 23 and say <laughs> you're the reason I joined the police, and I go, but that's not me. It's my twin brother because that was over 20 years ago. So appreciate it. And on that happy note, we'll leave it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. But please do Constable Brian and I a favour and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next Cappuccino podcast. Real people. Real stories.